0: It is really good to be with you and we're going to dig in because it, it went long last night. I can't. Ugh. So anyway, here we go. Um, yeah, this, this is chock full. This, these chapters, it was so hard to decide what not to say. So I decided just to say everything. So here we go. Yeah. So, um, as we begin, First of all, the teaching has been incredible this year. It's been really wonderful to hear the, some of the nuggets of truth that the Lord keeps kind of bringing up in my own heart, um, from the, te- the speakers before me. Um, it's been really wonderful. So, um, yeah, let's begin. We're going to begin, um, remembering the context of our passage. Um, otherwise it might start out as this really happy-go-lucky little narrative. It's really, so. <clears throat> And we'll say, oh, God does such great stuff. But let's remember what had just happened um, in this last chapter. And so I'm going to start with a question. So why was asking for a king a problem? And as we earn, learned last week, the Israelites wanted a king just like the nations to rule over them. And this request was a deliberate attempt to depose God as king, um, taking their destiny out of his hands because they wanted a man-centered approach to life. And we're going to see God's judgment was to give them what they wanted. Um, let's remember, though, from Deuteronomy 17, the type of king that God did want. It, asking for a king wasn't the problem. It was really asking for a certain type of king. And this is what God says in um, Deuteronomy 17 about the king that he did want for his people. That that person would be one of us, an Israelite, a fellow brother. That he would be ordinary no aristocracy in the kingdom of God that would help us strip strip our minds of this celebrity mindset that we often see on the crown if we watch that not not like the um, British crown um, and he was not to act independently of God but he was to be under the guidance of God and the prophets that that God had and specifically in Saul's case that he would be under Samuel um, And that he would also know the law of God, that he would have his own copy, that a scribe would sit down and write that whole thing out by hand, and he would have his own copy of that law, and that he would read it all the days of his life. Basically, that he would have daily devotions, right? But as our story begins today, we're going to keep those things in mind. Um, we're going to meet Saul. I'm not going to say all the names because I can't pronounce most of them in the beginning. But we're gonna find that um, the description of Saul, he was a Benjamite. Benjaminite, he was not a Benjamite, I think a Vegemite every time I say that word. He was a man of wealth. Um, and and Saul was handsome. He there was not a man among the Israel of Israel that was more handsome than he. And he, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was a good-looking guy, he was Mr. Israel. And um, last night Beth Whitney was here and I just looked at her and realized he was probably as tall as her husband Rod. Have you ever seen Rod? He is truly head and shoulders over pretty much any other guy in the building. Let's not tell him that. He might, it might go to his head. So in this, in our chapter today, we're going to see how God uses the ordinary and the odd and the ordained to bring about his purposes. So when this with this genealogy that um, the chapter starts with, I wanted to tell you a little bit about um, about the tribe of Benjamin and also on um, what the name of Saul means. It actually means asked of God um, and the tribe of Benjamin um, ha- was a bit of a mixed bag as we'll see that that Saul was. Um, many commentators call him a mixed bag. It's kind of hard to paint him as a rosy character especially since we know. The, the next stories that come, we know we know more about his life, but as he begins, he just kind of starts out as kind of an ordinary kind of guy, except that he was super tall. Um, the tribe of Benjamin, this uh, Benjamin was Jacob's youngest son and he was uh, Benjamin was the son of Jacob's most beloved wife, Rachel. and she died giving birth to him. Benjamin was also the smallest of the twelve tribes. And there's two significant passages regarding Benjamin that I'll highlight. Genesis 49 recounts that before Jacob died, um, he said to his sons, gather yourselves together so that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So he goes through the 11 other brothers and he finally comes to Benjamin. And he says simply, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. And in regards to this, Matthew Henry writes that um, it's plain that when Jacob was guided in what he said by the spirit of prophecy and not by natural affection, or else he would have spoken with much more tenderness to his beloved son. So he speaks only of the things that he foresees and foretells, that his posterity, I should really not staple this, posterity should be a warlike tribe, strong and daring, and that they should enrich themselves with the spoils of their enemies, that they should be active and busy in the world and a tribe as much feared by their neighbors as any other. A few Benjaminites were Ehud, the second judge, Saul, the first king, and then Esther and Mordecai, by whom the enemies of the Jews were destroyed. Paul, in the New Testament, was also part of this tribe. The second passage that speaks a little bit to this warlikeness of this tribe. Um, in the book of Judges, this recounts a horrific rape and beating of a Levite concubine, by the gang, by a gang from the tribe of Benjamin, um, resulting in a battle, a civil war at Gilbia, in which the other tribes of Israel sought vengeance. and after which members of Benjamin were killed, including women and children, and they were almost wiped out. And they had to be given women from other tribes to repopulate their tribe. It's a little sobering beginning, huh? When you think about that, um, what, what wasn't mentioned in this introduction of Saul? It's important to note that this really isn't a typical description used in biblical texts. And that should alert us to a problem. There's nothing really about Saul's character, And as I said earlier, most commentators agree that he was really a mixed bag, an enigmatic figure. And there's really nothing mentioned about Yahweh in this. Commentators say that Saul reflected the spiritual state of the nation, um, of God's people. Um, There might have been some spiritual image, but their hearts were really far from where God wanted them to be. So we begin with a search for lost donkeys. Um, so it's interesting to think that Israel's, what we'll see is Israel's first king was led to the throne by three lost donkeys. Donkeys were a sign of wealth in those days. Um, when you lost donkeys, you lost wealth and income. It's kind of like losing out on a few months' paychecks or losing your cars, and that would be an issue. Um, and we will see that we um, we often have no idea how God will use seemingly normal and annoying circumstances to bring about his purposes. So Saul took a servant, as his father asked him to, and they searched high and low for three days. They went to multiple cities. They walked many miles. And when they finally came to the land of Zuff, Saul just basically says, I'm done. You know, we can't find these dang donkeys anywhere. I just really want to go home. My dad's going to be worried. You know, whether that was an excuse to get home or whether, whether he really was concerned about his dad, but he basically says, we're going to stop here. So interesting. And at that moment, we end Saul's servant takes center stage. Saul's unnamed servant, we never learn his name. He drives the story. And look, look once again, how God uses ordinary people to bring about his purposes. In relationship to the kingdom of God, there are no minor characters. Everybody matters. So the servant suggests that they go see an honorable man of God, a prophet, to see if he can tell them where the donkeys are. So they also call him a seer, and a seer um, is actually a person who sees. They see visions, which are pictures or scenes seen in the mind's eye or in dreams, or even with one's natural eye. God spoke to his people through prophets in different ways, and one of the ways was through visions. Accompanying the ability to see visions, a seer was given insight into what God was saying by these visions. <laughs> so when the servant says this to him, in a way they're kind of treating um, Samuel, who will see as Samuel, as like a fortune teller. You know, they weren't really talking about, let's seek what he what the word of God says. They're really looking to find these donkeys still. And interestingly, um, Saul never seemed to have heard of him. He seemed actually totally indifferent to this. Um, and I kind of wonder, there's not much that the passage really says about, that, that Saul says. Most of the time, he's just asking questions. Um, and he really doesn't, um, he kind of seems clueless. Maybe he was a little self-focused. Um, and we have to ask once again, was there any interest in Saul in spiritual things? You know, it's interesting because chapter seven has just highlighted how Samuel had continually traveled from town to town, speaking the words of God and judging the people. And Saul didn't even seem to know anything about him. I find that kind of interesting. Maybe he was too busy playing lots of rugby or, uh, you know, what the games were back in that time. I don't know. It's just interesting that he didn't know anything. And Saul kind of seemed to be making up some excuses when he said, we have nothing to give him, we need to give him a present. Some would say, hey, he knew that he should probably give a gift. That was a good thing. Um, but isn't it interesting how the servant happened to have money in his pocket? So they went up to the hill, they met those women, um, the young women outside at the well. Um, I think it's interesting to think about how many um, times in scripture, they talk about men meeting women at the well. Maybe that was the only place they were really allowed to talk to them, or it was so far away from the city that they could, they could get away with asking questions. Um, but in that moment, those women were thrilled to tell Saul and his servant um, what was going on and what they knew. Um, some said, some some um, Jewish uh, history says that they loved talking to them because they were so handsome. I, I, I hate painting women in that light, but maybe it was true. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway. So these women happen to know everything about this prophet in that moment. So much coincidence, right? They tell them this guy, yeah, he's just come today. Go up into the city. You're sure to meet him before he goes up to, to, um, to the high place to, um, be part of these sacrifices and bless the sacrifices. We do see that Yahweh was up to something because these next verses are key in our story. It's almost like an afterthought about how God had come just the day before to Samuel and said, you're going to meet Saul tomorrow, the man of my choosing. You'll meet him tomorrow. So all this ordinary was from God's hands, all a part of his plan and his purpose even though the people were rejecting God as king, this shows us that God is still king. So in that moment, I really want us to spend a little time, and this is where I'm going to probably focus most, um, to talk about God's sovereignty and his providence. In this situation, it all looks rosy, doesn't it? You know, all these kind of little things that happen that might seem annoying, Um this is part of God's plan. Sometimes it's hard to look and talk about the sovereignty of God when it comes to suffering. So let's hear a little bit about what this sovereignty is. Um, I looked up some John Piper um, information on this, and he talked about kind of the difference of the, with the sovereignty and the providence of God. And let's just dig into that a little bit. This, um, the sovereignty of God refers to his position of supreme authority and power. He rules over and owns everything because he made everything. It's true that he causes and controls all things to happen, but that's not sovereignty. That's his providence. As the sovereign one, God has predetermined a predetermined plan and purpose for everything that happens in the universe. But he's not merely a detached observer of his creation. He is active in all history, time and space, carrying out his rule and kingship according to his plan and purpose. He makes everything work out according to his plan, as we read in Ephesians 1. And Hebrews 1 tells us, not only did God create everything, he upholds all things and all things owe their continued existence to him. And in this providence, God guards, guides, and governs all things. Daniel 4.35 says, he does as he pleases among the angels in heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? And that's where I want to rest for a little bit, because I think I'm one of those people that's often said, God, what do you mean by doing these things? What do you mean by, um, you know, what do you mean by these, this times of suffering that I've seen in so many of your lives? Like I know so many stories that are in this room. I know times where we, God does one thing and then he does the same thing not too long later. That just seems so hard. And while in many ways we sing about the beautiful sovereignty of God over everything, many of our songs talk about that on Sunday mornings. We focus on those things. And it is beautiful to see how he does care and how he is sovereign over all things. Um, but there's so much, so many times that this can be a hard pill to swallow. I often say everything, God, really, there's so much suffering and tragedy in this world. There's so much that doesn't seem to make sense. You allow this, you orchestrate this. God, this isn't what I was looking or hoping for. Yeah, those are my questions. They often come in the term. I I often just say, really, God? More suffering, more sadness, more loss. How can this happen again? And as I was really, I get once again reading this passage, kind of thinking about those things. A lot of times in my own life and heart, I tend to kind of stiff arm God. I try to at least stiff arm him when I'm struggling with to understand him. You know, the Bible talks about drawing near, and sometimes I, and I stiff arm him, and I realize that I'm questioning his goodness and his character. I'm just really wondering, how can this happen again? So I, um, I decided to look for this book that was coming to my mind called Behind a Frowning Providence. Some of you might have heard of that book. I know years ago at New Life, people had recommended to read it. I wrote it on the board. It's by a guy named John Murray. It's a nine-page short little booklet. And um, it talks a lot about this, what we call the frowning um, providence of God. Sometimes that we look at the adversity that comes, the times and it seems like it just keeps coming in, in waves. I'm going to read a few quotes from that. In this booklet, he um, asked the question, how do we view adversity? Sometimes we view it as coming from a source other than God and that he has no power to stop it. Sometimes we think God is angry at us and this is the evidence. And sometimes we think that he's just got it wrong. And we say, how can you be a good God when all this is happening? And I admit that I am guilty often of, of questioning his character and his integrity when I ask those questions. Um, but as Thomas Boston says in this booklet, he says, a right view of afflicting if incidents is altogether necessary for the Christian. And that view only comes by faith. It's not going to come by our senses or our feelings. And it's the light that's shown by the word of God that represents these afflictions justly. John sixteen thirty three says, in this world, you will have tribulation and suffering you know, I admit and I often hear people talk that they are looking really for a problem-free Christianity or one that will balance the good with the bad. However, that is not what we are promised. Instead, we see that the test of a person's faith is often what happens in the storm when the house is battered by winds of affliction. You know, we look at this story of Abraham, and it's kind of extreme in some ways. Um, He received this big promise that the nation would come from him, and he and Sarah Sarah were barren at that point. So he tries, he thinks that God's timing is off, and he tries to kind of force this promise into existence. He tried many times. And it's not till Genesis 22, when Isaac, he, he's this promised one finally comes. And then God says something that we see, we think is like, what? He says, place your son on the altar. And only when he puts his son on that altar, God says, now I know that you fear me. This is so deep and I cannot do justice to this story. And I'd love to dig into that more deeply. And it also reminds me a little bit of Hannah's story in the beginning, which, where she was longing for that son, and then she gets this long-desired son and she gives him back to the Lord. These are things that are just hard for our minds to comprehend sometimes, and yet we see them in the Word of God. There's a C.H. Spurgeon quote that I'd like to share with you. Um, he says, "The non-believer blesses God while he gives him plenty, but the Christian." blesses him when he smites him, when God smites him. He believes God to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him. He looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. Oh, to have that view of God all the time. That really brought me to my knees you know um we 've talked over the years at um, at New life about tracing god 's hand, and in that quote he talks about sometimes it 's hard to trace his hand, sometimes we can look back and see what he 's been doing and I was really struck um, by the idea of even looking at a hand you know it 's kind of got these natural hills and valleys kind of representing our lives when we think about that kind of reminded me of the this journey that we have on is not really going to look like. Has, has any of your journeys looked the way that you thought they were going to look? Probably not. Um, but we keep reading these stories because they are going to help us understand our story. So Saul's story will help us understand ourselves. And then with confidence, we can know that our lives are in the hand of this king. What else does God say in these verses that we just read where he inputs what his plan had been? He says, I have seen my people because their cry comes to me. Look at that. That beautiful thing. While we know that in some ways this is judgment, it's also God's mercy and they meet together. Yahweh is kind to his people in spite of their sins and in spite of our sins. And God is still king even when we don't want him to be. So we are going to jump ahead. We got a lot to cover in the next couple minutes. There's so much more that happens in this story. So, yeah, they they walk through the gates and the first guy they run into, who is it? It's Samuel. They don't even know who he is. Do you know where the seer is? And he says, "It's me." And then he tells Saul these kind of crazy things. He invites him to this feast and he tells him the donkeys have been found and he tells him that tomorrow morning I'm going to tell you all that you are wondering. All that you're Heart wants to know. So he goes up to the feast. He's given the choicest piece of meat, the seat of honor. I'm sure in some way Saul's mind was just spinning. What is going on? But we don't know what he's thinking, really. So, uh, Sam, uh, Samuel invites him back to his house. He spends the night. He sleeps on the roof where it's cooler. Um, next morning Saul sends him, um, Samuel sends him on his way. But before he does that, he says, send your servant on ahead. And um, I'm going to talk to you now. I'm going to reveal to you the word of God. And then chapter 10 begins with the anointing. All of a sudden, he is pouring oil over Saul's head. Don't you wish you knew a little bit more about what was actually going on? Did he just like pull out this oil and start pouring it over? Um, and I'm assuming that Saul would know that this oil anointing was actually a consecration. Um, Saul uh, Samuel says, You know, God is appointing you prince over his people. He doesn't use the word king in this instance. And you are going to save your people for this specific purpose. Save them from their surrounding enemies. You're going to be consecrated to service, chosen for a specific task. And oil did symbolize God's spirit given enablement. And up to this point, only priests and some prophets had been anointed. And then Samuel kissed him um, as a sign of affection. Last night, um, Gail asked me, where did he kiss him? There was oil all over him. I'm sure it was a messy, the whole thing was a bit messy. And then Saul went on, doesn't say that he washed his hair. He probably went on with greasy looking hair, smelling like oil. Um, it's kind of interesting. And then uh, Samuel gives him these next three signs to confirm this anointing that it was really from God. So um, we go through those things. The first sign where he meets the men and they tell him the donkeys are found. And they also tell him, and now your father is worried about you. Basically the exact words that Saul had said to his servant in chapter 9 but no one else had heard. Confidence that um, God really can control people under his authority and that God was listening the whole time and knew and the next thing he said, he's going to meet three men on their way to sacrifice. And they were going to be given two loaves of bread. And this was holy bread. It was meant for sacrifice. Um, and reminding Saul that he was truly consecrated and that the people would accept him and make sacrifices for him. And, and the third sign finally would be that he would come to a group of prophets. And it's interesting. They insert near a garrison of the Philistines. And then Saul would prophesy there. He would know all the words to all the songs that he probably never sang before. He would know all about God in that moment. The spirit of God would rush upon him. And then he was given a task and he said, when the spirit rushes upon you um, and these three signs meet you, he says, do what your hands find to do. I'm going to stay there for a little bit because this was really tricky for me because as this all comes true, And as he does prophesy, it never says that he did what his hands find to do. Commentators are kind of mixed about this. But um, the only other time that that actual phrasing is used is back in Judges, when um, the spirit rushed upon Samson, and he was to do what his hands found to do, which was that he was to defeat the Philistines. In that moment, the spirit rushed upon him, and then he would go and fight so, um, especially some of these preachers that I listen to that actually there's one guy, Liam Gallagher from 10th press. He preached 96 minutes about these two chapters. So I'm doing good at like 30, 35. Okay. <laughs> um, he says that he didn't really do what his hands found to do. He prophesied and then he went on and then he met his, his uncle. Um, so, was he supposed to, in that moment, go and fight the Philistines? Was the spirit enablement going to give him the power to to fight these Philistines in that moment? We don't know. It is a question, though. It's something that I think we need to think about. Did Saul do what God was enabling him to do? And also, just as a side note as well, the spirit rushing upon him, we often think about the spirit coming upon us for as a means of our salvation, God saving us. But the spirit also does come upon people to just enable them to do mighty things. It's not always salvation that it's referring to. That's a little bit, we could talk a long time about that. But that might be something for you to dig a little bit more into in your own study. And as I said, there's been volumes written about this. So maybe as these chapters go on, we'll hear more about that. Did Saul really know? god or did god just give him abilities to perform certain things i think it's pretty interesting so then from there he does prophesy and we see that um it's really interesting that we see in the next chap in that chapter that people heard him he was back near his hometown people heard him prophesying and they were saying who is this man that even saul prophesies it really sounds like saul wasn't known for any religious religious fervor and that they were really surprised. It's kind of um, can be translated in our terms as wonders never cease. Even Saul is prophesying. That's kind of interesting. So he meets his uncle. His uncle questions him. And notice that his uncle kind of keeps asking him, presses him. He probably noticed that his hair was super greasy and he smelled like olive oil. Maybe that was part of it. Like Samuel must have said something more to you. But it's interesting that Saul basically said nothing. He just said, he told me the donkeys had been found. Maybe he was in shock. Maybe he didn't really know what to think about everything. But it's interesting that they insert, Saul did not say anything about the kingdom. So the next thing we see, we arrive at Mitzpah. Um, it's kind of an abrupt thing. We come, to the, he uh, Samuel calls all the people together. And as you'll recall back, I think it was chapter six that Bethan taught about, um, or chapter seven, that uh the last um, time they were in Mitzpah was when God brought about that huge routing of the Philistines, not even um, using the men of Israel. God was the one that did that. He brought that huge roar, whatever that was, and sent the Philistines into confusion. And then they were defeated. And they were given this resounding victory. So let's, let's, let's look at um, Samuel's opening speech at this occasion. So he brings the people back together. And then once again, he says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from all the, the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Next thing he says is now present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Uh-oh. The last time they had done this, which was the casting of lots, was back when um, they had defeated Jericho. And, um, remember Achan? He had taken and some of the devoted things, like against what God had asked for. And they drew lots to find him and then he was killed. So maybe they were a little worried. I don't know. And maybe that explains why we read in this passage that when they came to Saul, where was Saul? Couldn't be found. He had been anointed. He had been proclaimed king. First there was a private anointing and now this public proclamation. And they couldn't find him. Where's Saul? Where's Saul? And they needed God again to, to find Saul for them. These people that were so convinced that they were going to be able to do this without God. They wanted a king of their own. They still were so dependent upon him to find their king once again. And they pulled him out of the baggage. And Samuel presents him as this man that is head and shoulders above everyone else. And he says, they proclaimed him all. What did they say to him specifically? Um, hail to the king, basically, right? So they didn't, in a way, like, were they processing that he was hiding? And yet they bring him out and they're hailing him king. Long live the king. That's what they said. The people still put their hope in Saul, regardless of what had just happened. And how Yahweh had to find them for him, for them. So I'm going to skip over this next section. But, you know, we once again, Samuel's trying to put before them, this is what the king is supposed to look like. He puts the words of the Lord. He writes them down. This is what he's supposed to look like. He's supposed to look like the king from Deuteronomy 17. And everyone went their own way. And God inclined valiant men to support Saul. But then there were the mention of these worthless men who didn't follow him. And they didn't want to follow Saul. It's interesting. You wonder why um, Why they said this. They called them worthless men. Maybe they were saying, this isn't the kind of king we wanted. Once again, God, Yahweh seems to be the one that's in control. They didn't want to have a king that had to wait for the word of the Lord to rule them. What, are we still going to be under this invisible God? You know, they are wrong to, to doubt this way. But they are right maybe to say, can this man save us? And that's the question that we are left with. So let's look over some of the takeaways from this passage. You know, could it be that we are to know that God can see the future? Yes, he certainly can. Maybe we can say, if God can find a lost donkey, maybe he can find my lost wedding ring or my lost puppy. Yep, he can do that. We can also say that God is moving and working through the minutia of our lives to accomplish his purposes. Yeah, we can say that. But we also need to accept the fact that many of God's ways are inexplicable and that we will not grasp their significance in this life. And you know what? God is also doing something far greater than that. He is revealing his ongoing mercy and protection over his people. And he's pointing us to the future king. Yes, he's pointing us to David first, who will be a man after his own heart, but ultimately to Christ, who will one day be anointed prophet, priest, and king. So as we just wrestle with this, this providence of God, I just encourage you to, instead of doing the stiff arm with the Lord in those times when we really don't understand his ways and what he's doing. I, draw, I encourage you to draw near to him. So let's do that right now as we pray. Lord, we do need you to work these truths deep into our hearts. Lord, we believe and yet help our unbelief. Help us to rest in your providential care and to come to you with our doubts and our fears and our questions. We thank you for your guidance and provision, even when we don't understand. Help our desires to align with yours, that we may learn to trust you more. Lord Jesus, we pray that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in the name of our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. Amen.